So this is it. We started Mark over a year ago. Now, uh, over a year ago now, and all uh, and all of what we've been reading about, studying about, reflecting on, applying to our lives boils down to this huge moment in history. What we're going to read this morning. If you're not a Christian here this morning, listen up. Um, your life and how it goes from here on is down, thanks Matthew, is down to what you make of this man, Jesus, and what he did, and what you're going to hear this morning. It really does. You see, Christianity, if you like, is not a system of, of, of philosophy or theory or ideology. No, 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 no. It's founded on a person. God come to earth as a man. Jesus Christ breathing his last on the cross, pouring out his very lifeblood for you and me. This is, what, this is what all of history, if you like, has been moving towards. This very, very climactic, historic moment. Those are uncontroversial statements. Okay. Um, so let's read it, shall we? Mark 15, verses 33 to 47. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, "Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled with a sponge with wine vinegar, put on a staff and offered it to Jesus for a drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, the Roman guard, who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how Jesus died, he said, surely, surely, this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who'd come up with him to Jerusalem were also there, lots of women. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as the evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph of Arimathea. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in the tomb, cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your cross. Thank you, Jesus, that week in, week out, every day, we thank you for your cross. Thank you, Jesus, that every day, your cross releases us. Your cross sets us free to live the life that you've called us to. I thank you, Lord, that your cross is a pinnacle, is a climatic, climactic event 
in human history that changes everything, changes the world, changes the nations, changes governments, changes eternity, changes absolutely everything. And we want to be a people who never get beyond the cross, who never um, uh, forget the cross. Actually, we want to be a people who carry our crosses in your name. We love you, Jesus. So the big question, the main question, why did Jesus have to die? Throughout history, most uh, leaders who have influenced nations or even changed the world are remembered for the impact of their lives and how they lived. Yet somehow, this Jesus is remembered not so much for his life, although his life was undoubtedly beautiful, but he's remembered more so for his death. How come? The famous comedian Lenny Bruce said, if Jesus had been killed 20 years ago, Catholic schoolchildren would be wearing little electric chairs around their neck instead of crosses. Curious, isn't it? Jesus himself was emphatic that the primary purpose of his coming to the earth was to suffer and die. Now my soul is troubled, said Jesus in John 12, just hours before his death. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Why did Jesus have to die? And I want to look at that. There's lots of ways of looking at that, but I want to look at that under three headings this morning. Firstly, Jesus died to bring light to our darkness. Secondly, Jesus died to bring light to our death. And Jesus died to bring you to him. Light to our darkness, life to our death, and you to him. So let's go. Jesus died to bring light to our darkness. In all four Gospels, when you read all four Gospels, we see the writers of those Gospels hammering home that the key events of Jesus' death happened in the dark. His betrayal, Peter's denial, His false trial in front of the Sanhedrin all happened at night in the dark. And and here as we get to the moment of Jesus' death, his last breath, verse 33 says this, at noon, bang, in the middle of the day when it should be bright and sunny, suddenly darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For three whole hours, unexpectedly, shockingly, disturbingly out of nowhere. Can you imagine it? that were to happen about now? What does it signify? What apart, what apart from that it actually happened, do the gospel writers, what are they trying to underline? Well, throughout the Bible, physical darkness seems to represent a deeper spiritual darkness. It's a metaphor, if you like, for everything that has gone wrong with us, everything that has gone wrong in the world, everything That's gone wrong in the human race. What the Bible calls sin. Turning our faces from the true bright light of God and choosing darkness. Life without God, disobeying him, dishonoring him, disregarding him. Sin, spiritual darkness. You see, if you think about it, our children are terrified of the dark. Well, they're not that bad, but as they're getting older. But darkness does something. You see, darkness is a horrible thing, and I particularly mean persistent, day-after-day darkness. 
Back in 1914, a guy called Ernest Shackleton, the British explorer, took a ship, the Endurance, to the Antarctica, the South Pole. He was leading an expedition to sail there and walk across Antarctica on foot. But you know what? They didn't make it. Their ship got caught in the polar ice and was crushed. And so over the next couple of months, they were just trying to get home alive. It's an amazing story, actually. In the end, they all did survive. Despite the incredible cold and temperatures and starvation and frostbite. But in the biographies uh, of Ernest Shackleton, one of the worst things they seemed to, they came across was the darkness. What's called the polar night where it goes totally dark for months down there. No daytime, no sunlight for three whole months, sometimes more. And this is what the biographer says about this darkness. It says this. In all of the world, there is no desolation more complete than the polar night. No warmth, no life, no movement. Only those who have experienced it can fully appreciate what it means to be without sun. Day after day, week after week, few accustomed to it can fight off its effects altogether. And it has driven some men mad. You see, long periods of darkness brings a deep, deep, disorientation, a confusion. It's unsettling. Why? Well, I think briefly for three things. Firstly, in the dark, you can't see forward. You can't actually see in front of you. You can't see where you're going. Secondly, you can't see yourself. You don't know what you look like. You don't actually know where your body parts are after a while if you've been in the dark for a long time. And thirdly, you can't tell uh, whether there's anybody around you. You become isolated. Deep disorientation. Spiritual darkness. Sin is like that too, isn't it? Think about it for a moment. The other night I heard John John crying, uh, usually for a feed. So instead of Charlotte getting up, I thought I'd bring him to her. So I got out of bed and walked to his room and it was totally dark. It was a really dark night. Um, so I picked him up and turned round and I bumped into Charlotte right in front of me going, Ah! And I went back, and and I turned back, and I went, ah! We were both terrified. Now, I'm used to her normally going, ah, when she sees me in the full light of day, but not at night. (laughs) We couldn't see anything in front of us. You see, in the Bible, the sun is often likened to God, isn't he? The source of truth, because by it, we see everything else. It reveals everything, the source of life, the sun, because without it, Everything withers and dies. God is often likened to the Bible. But if you center on anything else, yeah, instead of orbiting around God, if you center on anything else like career relationships, what people think of you, uh, whatever you, whatever you put God, whatever you center around, if anything is more important to you than God, you lose track of where you're going, don't you? For a period of time, it might feel like I have something to live for, my work or whatever. But those other things, as good as they are, always fail you. They're unstable. They eventually disappoint you. And even if you get all of those things, some people do, they're just not big enough for your soul to carry you through. You can't see where you're going when when you don't have God as your light. But sin also brings deep disorientation because you can't see Who you are, your true self, your identity, becomes a problem. Without the unshakable, all-knowing, powerful, perfect rock that 
only God is faithful and true. Without him, you have an identity that is very insecure, fragile, because it's based on the things that you're centering your life on. They don't deliver. And thirdly, in darkness, you become isolated. You can't see people around you. You become so wrapped up in the things that you're living for. You don't see who you're treading on, who you're pushing out, who you're not giving time to, your colleagues at work, your friends, your family, the needy, the people, your marriage, that God has put, where the people that God has put in your world, they become secondary. Spiritual darkness, Jubilee, sin, brings about a radical disorientation as God, our true light, moves further and further away from being the center, the very center of who he needs to be. And you see, after that disorientation, always comes darkness, uh, always comes disintegration, falling apart. That's what happens in persistent darkness, doesn't it? Marriage breakdowns, family fallouts, depression, fear, suicide, chaos, war, oppression, poverty, racial racial persecution, terrorism, disintegration, falling apart, spiritual darkness, life without God. But, and I love the buts in the Bible, but, but on the cross, Jesus defeated sin. He broke that wall down that separated us from life with God. What Leslie was talking about, actually, uh, last week, he battled darkness until it was finished so that we could choose life with him, real life, abundant life, the light of the sun. Do you choose light this morning instead of darkness, do you believe? Because God gives you freedom. He gives you what you want. He brings light into into your darkness if you choose it. Your call. If you're not a Christian here this morning, God wants to show you his life-giving light. Will you choose him? Jubilee, are you keeping Jesus as the center of all your thoughts and decisions and actions and crossroads and difficult issues? Because God needs to be in the very center of our lives. I think this is very important for the year ahead. It will change our lives and experience of God and experience of church and experience of everything that God is doing in this nation and the nations. Choose God. Secondly, Jesus died to bring life into our death. What do I mean by that? Death. don't like talking about that much. But let's talk about it for a bit. It's been on my mind a lot recently. In one of my roles as a GP, I'm presently chatting to a patient who wants to go to Switzerland for a lethal injection. Will you help me, doctor, she's asking. Since its first appearance, if we go back to the Bible, since its first appearance in Genesis 3, it has had a 100% record of crushing all comers. Despite what you sometimes might read in the papers, there has never really, really been a fall in the death rate. No one escapes. Why do we die? There's a lot of answers to that question, but Romans 6.3, the Apostle Paul tells us, in a very nuanced thought out way, actually, because actually his wisdom came from God. He says this in uh, Romans 6.23, for the wages 
of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, he's saying death comes only to sinners. It's a direct consequence of our sin. The sin of humanity, what we were born with, what we, uh, what we live out as a result of our natural sinful nature. You see, sin doesn't affect us just personally and socially. It also has bigger, broader, much more cosmic effects. This, uh, this broken world is a consequence of humanity living for itself instead of God. In the biblical creation story, we see how God goes out of his way, read it, goes out of his way to make a world brimming with dynamic, abundant forms of life that are perfectly interwoven, interdependent, interweaved, mutually enhancing and enriching what the Bible calls shalom, perfect peace. As God is making it all, he's continuously shouted, shouting out in the creation story, um, uh, in joy and glory. This is good. This is good. You can see, you can sense him having a ball. But at the fall, as humanity abandons living for and enjoying God as its highest good, the created world that God makes breaks. Tragic. Tim Keller, a New York pastor, writes this. Human beings are so integral to the fabric of things that when human beings turn from God, the entire warp and woof, the threads of the world, get unraveled. Disease, genetic disorders, famine, natural disasters, aging and death itself are as much of a result of sin as are oppression, war, crime and violence. We have lost God's shalom. Things now fall apart. And so because of sin, the Bible tells us, we have become victims of death. Death has become now our greatest enemy. Death is now our executioner. Death is out to get us because of sin. Despite what people tell you, death isn't natural. We hate, we fear, we dread the idea of dying, don't we? That's why we clunk click. That's why we have airbags and car seats and penicillin and heart surgery and chemotherapy and dignitas. We don't want to die. We're terrified of death. Why? Because it's not natural. Uh, one Bible teacher writes this, whenever you're in the presence of death, you know an enemy has been here. You know there's nothing natural about it. It's a monstrosity. It's a perversion of what should be. Death is our enemy. It's the enemy of sinful humanity, you and me. Get real. But what is fascinating here in this passage is that this wasn't the case for Jesus. Death wasn't his enemy. Death had no claim on Jesus. Why? Because Jesus never sinned. Jesus was perfect, spotless. Jesus should have never, ever have been the victim of death, not at all. And that's the wonder of what we've just read. Here in Mark's gospel, he's trying to get across to us the big deal, the ultimate sacrifice, the most absurd exchange. Jesus, God himself, the perfect one, the sinless one, 
voluntarily lays his life down for the sheep, you and me. No one takes it from him, but he lays it down of his own accord for you and me. This wasn't a suicide mission. No. He walks into our execution room. He stands in front of the missiles that were aimed at us. He takes the lethal injection, if you like. He faces the excruciating torment of an eternity separated from God, his Father, that only we deserve because of our sin. Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, the maker of the whole world is getting unmade. Death couldn't come to Jesus. So Jesus had to come to death voluntarily, sacrificially, lovingly. Why? For you and me. If you trust in the saving work of Jesus on the cross, death no longer has a grip on you, you see. It is finished. Death is defeated, Jubilee. I think we sang something like that earlier this morning. Come on, shout it out. Let's shout it out. It is finished. Death is defeated. Come on. Shout it out. I love how Kyrian got us to read the Bible um, this morning together. Death is defeated. You look forward to a certainty of life, of an eternity with God, with Jesus beyond the grave. That is your secure forever, ever, ever, ever hope now. And you know what? That changes everything, doesn't it? That jubilee affects your whole outlook on life. No longer are you hemmed in by death these 70 or 80 years that we have. In the truth that that you have as a lover of Jesus, uh, you have eternity in your spirit now. So increasingly, Jesus says, live like it. Don't be addicted to safety. Live a life rooted Live a life of faith rooted in your eternal hope in Jesus, not just these few years. Do you see it, Jubilee? How does it change you? Take your family on that adventure. Pray for those who you know haven't or don't have this life-giving, death-destroying Jesus. Pray for them to be part of that journey. For the wages of death, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God to you, Jubilee, who trust and love Jesus, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now live it out, now, right now, right here. Jesus died to bring light to our darkness. Jesus died to bring life to death, to our death. Finally, Jesus died to bring you to him. Over the last few months, uh, with sorting out Dad's estate, my father died in July uh, of last year, I found myself sitting in solicitor's offices quite a bit. And as you do, you, uh, it's, a bit like a do- it's a bit like a doctor's waiting room, actually. There's loads of leaflets and posters around. And I remember seeing a leaflet that went something like this. I can't remember exactly, but something like this. Amazing divorce deals. And I thought, what on earth is that about? And when I read it, it was selling, this leaflet was selling mediation services. What's that? Well, it's when married people who've decided to uh, go their separate ways, 
who've decided to separate go through a process where they try and reach a friendly uh, agreement outside the court through a neutral third person called a mediator. And it happens happens because the two parties have become so far removed from each other that they cannot resolve things themselves. They need someone to mediate, to bring them together in discussion. And so I was reading the book of Job, and this is about a man who goes through terrible suffering and hardship as God tests his radical perseverance and resilience and love. And there's a very profound point in the book of Job where Job, where where, where Job, he gets so cross with God that he wants to confront him face to face. He wants wants to cross the great divide that he sees between him and God and have it out. But he realizes how far beneath God he is. How could he get over that chasm? How could that ever happen? So he cries out in frustration in Job 9.32. He says, He, God, is not a mere mortal like me, that I might answer him, speak to him, that we might confront each other face to face in a courtroom. If only, Job says, there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us together. That's a very penetrating statement. A statement that is at the heart of the gospel, the joy news of Jesus. A statement answering why Jesus, God in every way, had to come as a man in every way, a mere mortal, to die this horrific death, to bring us together, the ultimate mediator, because he was fully man and fully God. And you know what? Everyone, through this sacrificial act, this history-changing act, can now come to him. You see, see the people at the end of this passage that we've just read this morning. See the people who come to Jesus at the end of the passage. Who were they? Women. At the time, in society at the time, one of the most disregarded, undervalued, um, thought of as unreliable people in that society. They were there. Who else? Joseph of Arimathea, who was he? A prominent member of the councillor, a religious top-of-the-pops guy. The high and mighty, wealthy Joseph of Arimathea. Jesus welcomed him too, after he broke his self-righteousness down a little bit. And then there's the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died and said, what? Surely this man was the son of God. Who was he? A pagan. An idol-worshipping killer. A thug. I believe, that's, I believe what he saw on the cross uh, that day will have changed his life around. If you're not a Christian here this morning, Jesus welcomes you in. He does. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, the cross tells you that Jesus wants you. Jesus loves you beyond all your understanding. Jesus forgives you no matter what. If you're not a Christian here this morning, will you just watch the greatest act of the universe and say, that's nice. Come on. Get real. Take this seriously. If you are a Christian here this morning, just as Jesus welcomes everyone in, you are called to do likewise. That's what God is calling us to move to day by day, every day. 
Jesus says, I want you to look out there at the people who you ordinarily despise, don't like, rich or poor, black or white, barrister or inmate, Stokesley or Stockton, who, who you, you would normally not hang out with, the ones who get up your nose, the ones who offend you. And I want you to show them the love that I showed you. I want you to meet their needs with such concreteness, with such sacrificial giving, with such vigor and energy that as they see your heartfelt, Jesus-motivated compassion, they'll be astonished, they'll be bowled over and want to know what is it about you that makes you go to such lengths, Jubilee? Who is the sun that you orbit around? That's the power of the gospel in us. It's a command. We're going to end there. If the band comes up, that'll be good. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. This is how Jesus started his mission. The spirit of the Lord is on me three years before going to the cross because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and downtrodden, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do you believe that is our Isaiah 61 dream, isn't it? And do you know what? What we've heard this morning, this amazing act of sacrificial, life-giving love. Jesus dying on the cross is him telling us that I want that dream to come true. And he will make it so. Because it's his dream. His kingdom jubilee has no end. Let's stand. You might have noticed there's uh, pens and papers at the bottom of your, or just underneath your chair. Um, we're get, sorry? Oh, feedback. There's, pens, uh, there's a pen and there's some paper underneath your chair. I just want us to respond this morning. Um, have you got the yellow bucket? Oh, oh no worries. Oh, can, you get, can you empty one of those things and just bring that forward? Just... Yeah, okay. We're just going to... I just want, as we're worshipping, we're going to sing our last song. As we're worshipping, I want you to think, what does that Isaiah 61 dream come true mean to you? Because dreams are something that might happen, okay? Dreams are things that might be a bit high in the sky, but that's not all I'm talking about. I'm talking about the prophetic yes of God over Jubilee. Yeah? We're hearing a lot of that at the moment. It's actually quite exciting to hear the prophetic voice of God rising and rising in Jubilee again. And I just wanted you to put and pray about, as we're worshipping, what does that mean to you? What are you praying for every day? Who do you want to see enter the kingdom of God? Which groups of people, individual names, things that you feel God has called you to pray for and and act on in terms of your part in this Isaiah 61 vision jubilee? Because everyone here is a part of that. Everyone here is a part of that. Do you get it? Let's worship. Thank you so much for everything you are to Jubilee. Let's be a people of faith. Let's write down our prayers and dream big dreams. Let's worship.